0: You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Stories of Jesus, New Life, and a New Family. In this series, we see that those who respond to the stories of Jesus are welcomed into the family of God, receiving new identity, new power, and new purpose. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, That isn't necessary. You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here, he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up twelve baskets of leftovers. About five thousand men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all. My name is Jonah. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. So, I was thinking about this text. A lot happening here. Uh, and one of the questions that I've been wrestling with, or I guess thinking about in my own life, is um, the difference between what we think we want and what we really need. Have you ever noticed that difference in yourself? when you really wanted something and you got it and it turned out to be different than what you were expecting. Uh, You really thought you needed something and then maybe you got it or you chased it and it had the opposite effect. Sometimes this is easier to see in uh, children and little kids. Like if you've got toddlers at home, um, I don't know what y'all call it in your parenting. At our home, we call it overtired, which then graduates to fussy. Um, and then it gets nasty. Overtired is when they're too tired, right? They've done too much for too long, and that's usually when they're fussing then at 9.30 at night saying what they really need in life is two more bananas and a chocolate milk. And it's like, what you really need is to go to sleep or whatever it is. You know, they they have kind of irrational thoughts and desires. Um, They're really certain they need one thing, and the wiser older parent knows, no, that's not actually what you need right now. Um, you ever been in a, uh, hypoth- well, hypothetically speaking, let's say you got an absurd fight with your spouse. I know you church people haven't had that happen. Those people out there argue in their marriages. Um, but you can imagine maybe you've had an argument uh, that's totally ridiculous and it ends with you on the couch. Your spouse is in the bedroom and you're kind of scratching your head wondering why you got so upset over pillowcases or, you know, it's like you got an argument about whether or not the onion straws go inside the green bean casserole or on top of the green bean casserole and you're driving the neighborhood trying to calm down wondering, why did I get so upset about that? You've had that kind of experience? Sorry, don't, I shouldn't have crowd participation in that question, yeah. Maybe after you, you calmed down, you realized that the fight wasn't about the pillow covers. It wasn't about the onion straws, or whatever the presenting issue was. There was something that you thought you wanted, but it was about a deeper need that you, you probably weren't even aware of. There was a longing that you had that you maybe couldn't name, and it was showing up in your concern over, you know, even maybe even trivial things. It's so important for us to understand what it is that we really desire. If we can name our needs, if we can name our desires, it can really change everything. At the heart of this story that, uh, that Sarah read for us, uh, it's not a story about miracles or picnics. It's a story about a God who knows what it is that we really need. And at least for the people in this story, it's very different than what they wanted. This miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. There's something uniquely important here, and it's worth paying attention to. Because it's in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the biographies of Jesus, we can get some additional clarity and details about what's going on here in the hearts of the people, and even in Jesus. So we'll be looking at the different perspectives, different details, but we'll start with Matthew uh, setting the stage a bit. In verse 13, it says, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. So the news that Jesus has heard is that his cousin was executed. uh, And in some ways executed for his faithfulness to God, um, his obedience to the mission of God. We talked about that last week. And we get an idea of what Jesus wanted here. Can anybody call it out? What did Jesus want that he got on a boat? To be alone, right? It's right there. It's in the text. So that makes it. Uh, thankfully a little bit easier. Typically, here's some more Bible trivia time. When Jesus goes off to be alone, what is he typically going to do? Pray. So that should be a little bit of a lesson for us. I don't think that's the only way to pray, but you know, Jesus wanted to be alone to pray. We don't know exactly what he wanted to pray about. I think there's some fair human speculation we can do. The fact that he's doing this in response to one of his family members being killed. Maybe he was Uh, scared and discouraged. Uh, Maybe he was just sad. Maybe he was tired. Been a long couple of years. Over and over, you'll see Jesus, in hard times or in exhausting times, goes away to be alone. Um, Presence heals pain is one of the lessons I think Jesus is showing us. The presence of God heals pain. And some of you know this because something awful has happened and you got an answer or even an apology? You ever waited years for an apology and it came and it did nothing for your anger? It did nothing for your bitterness or or resentment? The presence of God heals pain. I think that's what Jesus wanted. He wanted to get alone so he could be with his father and experience some refreshment. But the crowds followed him. We know what Jesus wanted. What did they want? Why are these crowds following him? Okay, so if we go to Mark's gospel, we get an interesting verse. Mark chapter six, it says, Jesus looked at them and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep without a shepherd, especially if you don't read the Old Testament a lot. Here's another instance. I'm not gonna make you a crowd participate. I'm assuming most of you are not Old Testament people. Do do with that what you will. Uh, There's a whole 60% of your Bible you could spend some more time with. Um, If you don't know much about the Old Testament, this idea may seem like kind of a pastoral image of concern. Like there'll be like a sheep that's just lost out in the woods all alone and sad or something like that. You know, it's it's kind of an affectionate image of a caring God. Uh, This is a quote from the Old Testament, which if you were really familiar with the Old Testament, you might catch it. It's from the end of Numbers chapter 27, or sorry, the Numbers chapter 27, the end of Moses' life. When God, after all these years of wandering in the wilderness, God informs Moses because of his leadership failures, he is going to be excluded from the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. And he tells Moses, you're going to die before we get there. And Moses prays to God that they, uh, the people of Israel would be given a military political ruler, or else they will be like sheep without a shepherd. This phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is an Old Testament term for people who have no military or political power. Uh, No military um, leader to defend them and fight for them and no politician to govern their systems. Jesus is looking at this crowd and he has compassion on them because they want what Moses wanted. They wanted a military political leader. They wanted Revolution and overthrow. And if you think I'm pushing it, you can go to John's gospel and look at what Jesus says there or what we learn about Jesus. Jesus, knowing they intended to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He sees what do they want? We want Jesus for president. We want Jesus to lead the country. We want Jesus to come and overthrow Rome. Think about why these people are out in the middle of nowhere. Who lives in the middle of nowhere? These are people who wanted a military overthrow. These are revolutionaries out in the sticks where they can hide from Roman oppression and start building up dissent. And here comes King Jesus. You have to get the image of a nice picnic in a field out of your mind when you come to this story. This isn't checkered blankets and Longaberger baskets. You guys have those? I grew up in Ohio in Longaberger baskets. There's some famous basket company. You could drive through Ohio and they had a huge, their their offices were a basket. It was a giant basket. Then, you know, like this just nice sweet image of the red and white checkered blankets and our meat and cheese spread. And we're out just to listen to Jesus preach. Like that is not what's happening at all. These are revolutionaries who have walked to a desolate area to start a revolution. Matthew says, Jesus sees the crowds and his first move, having compassion on them, seeing that they're sheep without a shepherd, knowing they wanted to make him king by force, he starts healing them. And generally speaking, in life, we're pro-healing, most of us. So maybe if you're there, you're thinking Jesus is healing all of these people to get the troops healthy. we got heal to the, heal the troops so that we'll have a healthier army, so that we can go storm Jerusalem and then Rome and then the world. Well, Mark says after the healing, Jesus began teaching them many things. He doesn't give them battle preparations. He starts preaching the gospel to them. We're getting healing and teaching instead of war planning. And you could maybe tolerate if this was like the intro to the day, this was the intro to the rally, or like maybe you went to a music festival and the first band is not really your style, but you know you're going to have a whole day of your band after that. This goes on for the whole day, healing and preaching. And the grand finale, the climax of the day, is Jesus gives them bread. We'll get to that miracle, but you got to see the disconnect. What the crowds wanted and what they were given were wildly different. Because the crowds did not know what they needed. They probably wanted something really good. You know, like to be free from oppression. That's a good human desire. You were not made for oppression. You were not made for tyranny. They wanted freedom from the pain of oppression. And that's a good desire. God just had a different path forward than what they were wanting. They wanted a king, and they received a teacher. They, they wanted to hurt people and instead were healed. They wanted swords, and they were given bread. One of the reasons I think it's so important for us to be able to, to get a little bit of clarity on what we need and what we really want is because I just I just don't think you can be free if you don't know what you need. The human soul will find a way to get what it truly needs. Whether or not we're consciously aware of that or thinking about that, It's it's human and we will be driven to that. So To be human means there's some kind of scratch you're always trying to itch. There's some kind of deep pain that seems just out of reach. Your soul made in the image of God was not made for this kind of pain, so you'll have a vague sense that maybe you could be healed, or maybe it shouldn't be this way. Have you ever wondered why the sense of unfairness is universal? why something can happen, and people will say, that's not fair. There's something inside of us that knows when things are off, but if we can't name it or define it, we just start chasing after solutions to heal our pain. And it will become an experience like putting water in a bucket with a hole in it. You remember that song, There's a Hole in the Bucket, Dear Eliza? You keep filling it and filling it and filling it. Some of you are so, so tired right now Because you've been filling that bucket over and over and over. And the itch hasn't gone away. The pain hasn't gone away. And honestly, I don't care what your religious background is. I don't care what your worldview is. Everybody has that longing for a cure, for satisfaction. In college, I studied philosophy at a large public school public state school, and just to say, like, studying philosophy as a conservative Christian, I was the only one in the department. It was really strange. Um, and I got to spend a lot of time with this French existentialist philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. Anybody ever read that guy? Really? I'm sorry. Oh, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, you but I'm really, I, you could read it for, like, intellectual curiosity, I guess, but it's some brutal reading. Um, he was the father of I don't know if he, the father, but he was one of the first guys to talk about this, this belief system that became known as existentialism. And that's basically, if you've ever heard the phrase like, this is my truth, or it's, if it's true for you, that's okay. If it's good for you, it's good for you. You do your truth, I'll do my truth. That's kind of existentialism in a nutshell. You get to decide what's true for you as long as it's okay that they get to decide what's true for them. And this was Sartre's deal. He was a rabid atheist. Um, He was kind of like, there is no God and I hate him kind of a guy, though. He lived in kind of constant war with this longing for God. And he he ended up committing suicide at the end of his life over some of these wrestlings. Um, He's got this wild quote that I think so perfectly displays the irresistible hunger we have for something more. So at the end of his life, towards the end, he said that God does not exist, I cannot deny that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. So he had made a decision, God doesn't exist, none of this matters. And he wrestled with everything in him, crying out for something bigger, larger, more satisfying. That's the itch. That's the hunger. He could make a mental assertion that God doesn't exist and it didn't change the longing of his soul to find its rest in God. He's not free when he's, Living that way, how do you know? Well, you can just look at how he ended his life at the end. He could not escape the realities of the pain that he was facing. If you do not know what you need, you'll be drugged along all of these different roads in life and you will find yourself in crazy places. You are not free if you don't know what you need. Even if you get the revolution that you want. Even if you get the king on the throne that you want. So, to these crowds who are hungry for revolution and to make Jesus a military political ruler, he preaches the gospel to them. To crowds hungry for violence, he gives bread. And I th- again, maybe just because of some of the distance culturally, we miss how significant that is. Anybody else scared of bread here? I'm because of carbohydrates, not because of like the bread monster, right? <laughs> Thank you. If I eat, a, it takes me three or four days to recover from a piece of toast emotionally. You know, (laughs) when I get a piece of food, I immediately go to the nutrition facts and write to the carbs. For us, carbs are scary. They're threatening. but, But in that day, bread meant life. That's why at one point Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. For Jesus, for that culture, for that day, bread meant life. Jesus is meeting a deeper need here than the crowds even know they have. A need far deeper than simply dinner. He's offering more than revolution. He's offering them freedom. Let me show you where this is in the text. The disciples, in verse 15, they want to send everyone to the villages to get what they need. What do the disciples think they need? They need dinner. How should we go get it? Well, they should go back to their villages and get some food. I think this is really funny. I find Jesus humorous often. Uh, Jesus responds to them and says, you feed them. And you can imagine the disciples, they seem a little exasperated in their response. They have five loaves and two fishes. They have seven items, five loaves and two fishes. And it's just, they haven't done an exact count yet, but they're looking out and they're like, Jesus... And he says, you got everything you need. Why don't you feed them? One commentator I read, I love this. He said, the lesson here is disciples should always count to eight. Because they, let's do math. Five loaves, two fishes, one almighty God of the universe. right? They'd, they'd forgotten lucky number eight there. So verse 19, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples. Here's how I know this miracle is about more than dinner. Let's look at the sequence here. Jesus took the five loaves. Step one, took, looked up toward heaven and blessed it. Took, blessed. Then breaking the loaves. Took, blessed, broke. He gave the disciples, gave the bread to the disciples. Took, blessed, broke gave. There are five feeding miracles in the Gospels and three instances of the Lord's Supper. In each one of those, the sequence is the same. Took, blessed, broke, gave. Took, blessed, broke, gave. Jesus is giving them a foretaste of the ultimate promise of the Gospel. The presence of God Himself which will be delivered through something broken, given for us. Took, blessed, broke, gave. Pain is healed in the presence of God. The pain of Jesus on the cross, through that pain, we gain entrance into the presence of God. We remember his pain every week. Body given for us, blood shed for us, sealing our relationship with God. This is what he is enacting through the feeding of the 5,000. He's giving them a picture, a foretaste of what he will do on the cross through the resurrection, ultimately meeting their needs by returning them into the presence of God itself. You want freedom? It is not found in revolution. It's found in union with Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And if you can begin to understand, the freedom that is available to us in this story, I think, is beyond our imagining. You know, One thing that really strikes me, I hope to have confused you a little bit or made you a little, um, I don't know, uncomfortable how I've kept saying how important it is for you to know what you need. Because if you're more than 30, older than 30, you should be aware that you don't know what you need. Like that's old enough to know you are not nearly as smart as you think you are and you don't have the world, let alone you figured out nearly as well as you think you do. And then you hear the preacher saying, well, you've got to know what you need. And there should be a little bit of you saying, I don't know what I need. So here's one of the great lessons of the story, though. This is a bit of a trick, I suppose. Jesus will provide for you even when you don't know what you need. Neither the crowds nor the disciples knew what was really going on here, but Jesus did. He knows the hearts of men. He knew what they were after. The disciples brought what they had to Jesus and they trusted him to do something with it. it. made no sense to them. They didn't know Jesus was enacting some grand cosmic drama of the gospel here. Think about how—think about the freedom this could bring into your prayer life. Remember the old song, Jesus on the main line? Anybody know what the next line says? Yeah, Jesus is on the main line, which used to be an old way of saying you've got him on the telephone. Tell him what you want. How often are you judgmental of your own prayers? Or you find yourself wanting to pray for something and you're like, that's stupid. I feel so dumb for feeling this way. And we think we have to pray these specific, holy, wonderful prayers. If you read the book of Psalms long enough, you will find that it's f- I'm not filled. It is not uncommon to find heresy in the book of Psalms. People are praying things that are not true in the book of psalms which isn't god saying i don't care about doctrine or theology it's saying i am secure enough and i love you enough that you can say crazy things to me if jesus knows you better than you do did you pay attention to the liturgy earlier my thoughts are not your thoughts my ways are above your ways it, the, the act of prayer is coming into the presence of a God who's smarter than you, who's got more going on than you, who has you figured out in ways that you don't have figured out. If he knows what you need more than you do, you are free to pray honest prayers knowing that they may be incorrect prayers. You can come, it's it's less important that you get your prayers precisely right as it is you pray them to God. It, it, as it is you you come into fellowship and relationship with God, knowing that you may be crazy. If you being crazy is off the table for you, that's one of the surest signs you're crazy. So, you, you can go ask God for a king. Just know he may give you bread. You know what I'm saying? If God knows what you need, even when you don't, that means you are free to ask him for what you want. And just take a dose of humility to know he may give you something that's quite a bit different than what you think you want. Uh, A good friend of ours, um, we partner with him through Soldier Network, just wrote a book on prayer that's shockingly good. By shocking me, it's like it's hard to write a good book about prayer uh, it's called The Possibility of Prayer. We had a bunch of copies. They all sold out. You can get them on Amazon. We'll have more next week. It's called The Possibility of Prayer by John Stark. It's easy to read. It's pastoral. It's encouraging. It's really, really helpful. If this idea of praying honestly, or you want to see more of how that plays out through the scriptures, like, this is a fantastic resource for you to help you start praying more honest prayers and how to functionally live like you know God will provide for you. He will not leave you to go hungry. Jesus will give you what you need, even when you don't know what you need. Now, some of you, some of us, are afraid to bring our desires to God at all because we feel unimportant. Or we think that he's got more important things to worry about than whatever our situation is. Maybe the honesty bit is, is easier for you and it's harder for you just to believe that God would pay attention to you at all. Or like, does he really care about my relationships? Does he really care about my job? He's running a universe or I don't know. It's a common thought that I hear from time to time. Uh, I think this text is showing us the story that not only will God meet your needs, even if you don't know them, but there's also this sweet promise here that, that Jesus will not overlook you. So look with me at verse 21, okay? I'm going to read it to you how I hear it. I, this is just how I hear it. You all, you can disagree with me if you want. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Doesn't that feel just like a tad dismissive? That means that somebody out there counting the church attendance was like, man, man, man. Woman, 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 kid, kid, man, man, man. You know what I mean? Like they're intentionally skipping over these people. The, the women and the children were not counted because in that culture, women and children did not count. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> Doesn't it sound cooler to be like 27,000 people ate food? But it's like 5,000 men ate food. So listen. The women and children were not counted, but they were fed. Do you see that? You see even here, the tension between the cultural beliefs and the heart of God. The people didn't find them worth counting, but God found them worth feeding. They were nameless, voiceless, overlooked by their culture, but not by their God. If you have a God who will provide for you and he sees you. That's the positive way of saying you will not be overlooked. You will be seen. God is seeing you, and he will provide for you. Then you are free, despite what your culture says, or what mom and dad say, or what whoever says. If you have a God who sees you and will provide for you, then you have the voice of the only one who truly matters saying, I love you, I'm with you, I see you, I provide for you. And you are unimaginably free. When Jesus breaks bread again for his disciples, I just think it's hard for us to conceptualize the implications of all of this for our normal lives because it is such a radical departure from what we feel. In verse 28, Jesus says, uh, of Matthew chapter 26, he says, this is my blood. He's holding up the cup which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. The, the itch, that longing that you have is for your soul to be reunited with God and for you to live as you were made to live. We cannot live that when we feel we're in a world of scarcity or when we're so terrified of proving ourselves or becoming impressive to other people. So look at this. Build up that Jesus does for us. He says, I will provide for you even though you're confused. I will see you even though you are overlooked elsewhere. And I will secure you. I will keep you safe in the family of God. So often I'll meet somebody on Sunday that they're here at church on Sunday because of all the mess they did Friday and Saturday. Oh, I'll make you raise your hands. Some of y'all went to church because of that. Maybe not today, but at some point in your life, I'm going to come and make it up for God. Isn't it interesting how church attendance goes up when craziness happens in the culture? Or, you know, some of you, your story is probably I did something really crazy and I came back to church and I was going to get right with God. Listen, the body of Christ was given for us. The blood of Christ shed for us and this seals the covenant between God and his people. Through Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your relationship with God is sealed not by your achievement but by his which means the only way you can get out of the family of god is if you can unresurrect jesus and uncrucify jesus and somehow make him live something other than a sinless life and that matter was settled 2000 years ago the blood of christ seals you you are sealed in your relationship with god not because of what you have done but because of what he has done so Just try to imagine this. If your approval is sealed at the cross, you are more free than you know. If you were no longer scared to prove yourself or to be impressive, what would you do? If that was just all of that pressure, all of that anxiety. Can you imagine? Our life would get to be a response to the love and forgiveness God extends to us in Christ we would get to live from a place of freedom and delight in who God made us to be. You are secure in Him. You are seen by Him. You are provided for in Him. You are free. So bring what you have. Bring what you think you need. Cry out to Him. If you want to be free, let Jesus meet your need, even if you don't know what it is. Come to him, cry out to him, follow him. So we ground ourselves in this promise, and in this invitation week after week by remembering the night he was betrayed where Jesus took a loaf of bread, blessed it, broke it, and he gave it. Took, blessed, broke, gave. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward or back. There'll be stations in the back. Rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. You can use whichever you'd like. Uh, We have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us. And then Christians, let's come remember our hope and our freedom together. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.